I'm really happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Jim Newton. Mr. Newton is editor of the editorial pages of the Los Angeles Times. He supervises the editorial board and oversees its work, as well as the op-ed page, Sunday Opinion, and Letters to the Editor. A 19-year veteran of the Times, he has worked as a reporter, editor, and bureau chief, and on the Pulitzer Prize-winning teams that covered the 1992 Los Angeles riots and the 1994 Northridge earthquake. Mr. Newton is also author of Justice for All, Earl Warren and the Nation He Made, a critically acclaimed best-selling biography of the former Chief Justice and California Governor. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Jim Newton. Uh, it's worth it just to have Gregory refer to me as Mr. Newton. Um, so, uh, thank you all for being here this evening. Uh, we're here to talk about education in California. Um, I'll introduce the panel in just a moment. I'd just start by saying, you know, as, as many of you or all of you probably know, there was a time when California's education system really was the envy uh, of the nation. Uh, going back into the early part of the 20th century, uh, UC Berkeley uh, was uh, one of the country's most prestigious co-educational uh, institutions very early on. Uh, under uh, forward-looking governors like my personal favorite Earl Warren uh, and also Pat Brown, the system expanded and gave a really rich uh, and affordable educational opportunity for this state through a period of, of tremendous growth. Uh, as late as the uh, early 1980s, uh, I recall as a student uh, growing up in California, you know, families would move here uh, to, to the state to get their, in their children's high school years so that they could take advantage of a, an extraordinarily uh, high quality public education system and then qualify for the remarkable deal that was in-state uh, tuition in, at a UC system. Uh, today, uh, by contrast, and we'll talk about here the, tonight, uh, California's educational troubles are manifold. Uh, that has implications for our economy, our social order, and in a, in a largest sense, I think our sense of fairness uh, and justice. Many of those problems are highlighted uh, by a new report uh, from the Public Policy Institute of California. Uh, it's entitled, Closing the Gap, Meeting California's Need for College Graduates. And we're lucky tonight to be joined by one of the authors of that study, Hans Johnson, who's in the middle here. Uh, he's going to bring us up to date uh, on, on the work of the study, and then we'll discuss some of its implications uh, along with the larger questions uh, of this, uh, where this state is and where it's headed in terms of providing an education for its residents. Uh, so with that, let me introduce you to the panel. Um, to my immediate uh, left, uh, Michelle Siqueiros. Uh, Michelle uh, currently serves as the Executive Director for the Campaign for College Opportunity, where she works to expand college opportunity for the next generation of California students by promoting policy solutions, working with the media, and engaging a broad-based and bipartisan coalition of Californians as advocates for college opportunity in this state. She is based in Los Angeles, uh, and in honor of Women's History, uh, in March 2008, La Opinion uh, named her as one of Los Angeles's Mujeres Destacadas, right? Thank you. Uh, outstanding women for her leadership in education. To her left, uh, I already briefly introduced Hans Johnson, uh, Hans is an Associate Director of Research and a Senior Fellow with the Public Policy Institute of California. Uh, the PPIC is a private nonprofit organization dedicated to improving public policy in California through independent, objective, nonpartisan research. Hans's research uh, examines interactions between population change and public policies and includes work on the determinants and consequences of population growth, international and domestic migration, higher education, and housing. Prior to joining the PPIC, he was the senior demographer at the California Research Bureau, where he conducted research for the state legislature and governor's office on population issues. Uh, he holds a PhD in demography from the University of California, Berkeley. And then to his left, uh, Gary Orfield. Orfield. 
Uh, Gary is a professor of education, law, political science, and urban planning at UCLA, where he analyzes civil rights, education policy, urban policy, and minority opportunity. He was the co-founder and director of the Harvard Civil Rights Project and is now co-director of the UCLA Civil Rights Project, Proyecto Derechos Civiles. Uh, Orfield's uh, central in, uh, interest has been the development and implementation of social policy with a central focus on the impact of policy on equal opportunity for success in American society. Um, and with that, uh, let me uh, turn it over to you, Hans, if you'll take a minute to describe the study and uh, then we can all talk about it. Sure, so what I'd like to do is just briefly uh, tell you how we came about doing this study and um, what was really surprising to us about this. So we started a series of studies looking at California's long-term future. Where is the state headed? What are we gonna look like in 2025, which was the year we chose for kind of our benchmark year for thinking about California's long-term future. And one reason we did that was because too often we felt that public policymakers in California were really focused on the short term and not thinking about some of these long-term issues. And of course, when we started this set of studies, we thought that we would be finding a lot of, um, that we'd be talking about a lot of issues about infrastructure, so transportation and water, things like that. And certainly those are very important issues and, and present some real challenges for California going forward. But one area where we were actually somewhat surprised by our results was in the area of educational attainment. And specifically, what we found was that California's economy is continuing to uh, demand more highly educated workers. Our projections to 2025 are a continuation of what's happened in the past and suggest that in 2025, four out of every 10 workers in California uh, will need a college degree to um, succeed in the labor force uh, of, of 2025. And yet, at the same time, we found that our population is changing in ways that make it unlikely for us to meet that demand. And specifically, while California has um, a, a very impressive historical record with respect to higher education and, in fact, K-12 education even, uh, we're not keeping pace. And if current trends persist, we uh, forecast that there will be a gap of one million people too short, uh, too few college graduates in California. By college graduates, we're focusing on people who have a bachelor's degree or more. So in 2025, we'll have the shortage of a, a million college graduates. Now, and now, in reality, we know that's not going to happen. The supply will equal demand. And so we really are faced then with kind of two very different versions of, of a California future. One in which we would be much less educated than we would otherwise expect. And that means lower incomes, less tax revenue, more demand for social services. Or one in which we're able to rise to the challenge, improve educational outcomes uh, for Californians, and end up with a, a future that um, is much more promising and, and is what I think all of us want to see happen in California. Obviously, the changes that we need to make uh, are some of the things that we've outlined in this report, but obviously, uh, they're not easy uh, to, to accomplish. But in our studies, we've, we've identified key, key transition points where we think there is uh, quite a bit of room for improvement. That is in uh, direct college going from high school. California ranks 40th in the nation right now in terms of the share of our high school graduates who grow directly to college. Uh, our community college system is huge, um, but um, a lot of kids do not end up successfully transferring out of that system. So our best estimate is that uh, somewhere between 20 and 30% of uh, high school students who enter community colleges with the intention of, of transferring actually end up doing so. And then finally, uh, within our state's uh, public uh, institutions of, of higher education, the four-year universities, which of course are UC and, and the CSU system, 
uh, we see that there's a lot of room for improvement, especially at UC in terms of completion rates. Only about half of an entering class of freshmen at uh, California State Universities end up finishing within six years. And um, that's, uh, those are kids who, you know, they've done everything right, they've gotten into the, to the system, uh, and yet only about half of them end up actually finishing and, and graduating. So I think this, this study and this discussion that we're gonna have tonight is really about what kind of future we wanna have and, and how can we get to the future that I think most all of us uh, would desire. Let me start with a question for you, Hans, and just follow up on that. Let me ask, the, why is it essential that California educate Californians? What's, what's wrong with the system in which Californians grow up here, leave, go to school, come back, don't come back? Why, why is it important to make these numbers? Yeah, so, so when we first uh, started doing work in this, one of the first questions people ask is, well, we'll just migrate our way out of this problem. That's what California has done in the past. And in fact, it is the case that uh, a very large share of college graduates in California are people who came from elsewhere. It used to be that they primarily came from other states. Um, and increasingly now, we have a higher share of people who come from abroad. So right now in California, among college graduates who are in the workforce, about a third are, are born in California, about a third are born in other states, and about a third are, are born uh, overseas. But what we've seen happening over the last 10 and even 20 years um, demographically is that California is no longer attracting those domestic um, migrants that, that you uh, talked about in your opening comments. Uh, and in fact, we have a net loss of college graduates to other states right now. And international migration, although it's picked up in terms of, of the flows of college graduates, it still uh, falls far short of, of, of the need. So I think that you know, the, the first answer is we can't migrate our way out of this problem. We're on, on a trajectory right now with respect to our migration trends, which uh, is not going to come even close to solving the, 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 this, this gap. And then um, I would also say that you know, we want our own kids in California to succeed by our own education system. Uh, the number one uh, expenditure of state government, uh, declining as we speak, is uh, <laughs> education. And uh, it is the primary purpose of, of state government. Um, we want our own children to be able to succeed in the economy of the 21st century. And unless we change some of these pathways and, and, and see some market improvements, a lot of California uh, kids will not be able to succeed and they'll be uh, underemployed or unemployed and have lower wages than, than would otherwise be the case if we're able to, able to rise to this challenge. Michelle, how worrisome uh, are the trends that Hans is describing and that the study outlines? Well, I think uh, what Hans and PPIC have provided is a real solid figure for what we can expect if we do nothing. Um, and if we continue on a path of really short-sighted solutions, which is really the trajectory that our state government is operating in, you know, we're all in full crisis mode. Um, everybody in Sacramento is, is looking at how to make very, very deep cuts to education, to health, to human services. Um, and it's, it's just continuing, I think, uh, to uh, produce really unfortunate results, I think, for us. And, and certainly, I think Hans said it earlier when we were in the back, but we've sort of rested on our, on our laurels. You know, we have a wonderful higher education system, the best public four-year university in the entire world, the best system of community colleges that serve the most number of students, uh, wide access, especially for low-income students. Um, you know, at the Campaign for College Opportunity, our focus has really been of increasing college going so that we can meet workforce demands and improving student success, the student success of those that already enter college, making sure that they actually walk out with some level of 
training and experience and preparation for the workforce. Um, we could call ourselves the, you know, the campaign for human capital because this is really what it's about. Uh, it's about, as Californians, do we make a decision about investing in our people, in our children, in our neighbors' kids, and, uh, and following that investment through? Um, I think you know, today we're, we're discussing um, only cuts as options, and I think the public has you know, uh, rejected, uh, perhaps in the last few weeks, the discussion around revenue increases. But I think you know, we're all going to pay the price if we continue to live in this state and if we care about our community um, if we don't choose to raise revenues in order to ensure that these deep cuts to higher education and education in general occur. Um, and we're not on a trajectory. I think our health will depend on it. Some of the other trends that PPIC and other researchers have found is, you know, we have a growing baby boomer population that's getting ready to retire, has already started to retire. They are going to demand more health services as they get older and live longer. Um, they're going to also exit careers. They're the most educated population cohort that we have in the state of California. Um, and I think it's sort of the antithesis of the American dream. You know, we all expect that our children will have better opportunities than we've had. Um, I think, you know, as the first person in my family to go to college, my mother immigrated here from Mexico. Um, you know, I think I represent in many ways the, the opportunity that California really can provide our citizenry. And um, unless we really make proactive choices to choose to make those investments, you know, I'm not sure that our kids are going to be as well off as we are. Um, and I think that's a bit disturbing, I, I think, to think about the short-sighted solutions that we're making now in terms of uh, decision-making mm -hmm. at the policy level. Uh, Gary, uh, Michelle refers to the need for revenue and all of this. Uh, you're watching what's going on in Sacramento. Is there any appetite for, by anyone to increase revenue in, the, in a position to do it, uh, to actually bring new revenue into the system at this point? Well, I think there is. I think there's a majority in the legislature that's ready to get revenue. The problem is we don't allow the majority to rule in this state. We have we've crippled the representative governmental institutions of California. So we've given a minority the veto, and we have a, a group of a, a relatively small minority that's fiercely dedicated to an ideology that says nothing else matters but not raising taxes. Nothing else matters. It's as if you had a group of people who pledged to drive their cars in a straight line and, and it found out that there was a cliff in front of it and decided <laughs> they had to keep going in a straight line no matter what. Um, that's what's happening. Um, it's not that there are not responsible majority of legislators that are ready to produce revenue. Um, it's that they're not allowed to, the majority is not allowed to rule under the propositions that have crippled our legislative institutions. Um, and now we're beginning to really pay the cost of that because we've, we've crippled our tax system through referenda. We've crippled the representative institutions of the state. We've institutionalized a minority veto. There's a political party in this state that has taken a, a, a really dangerous and uh, under these circumstances fanatical pledge uh, to do whatever is necessary to destroy the institutions and families of the state uh, in order to never raise a tax. Um, this has become the only value that, that's driving them. And uh, it's not that the majority of elected officials in this state aren't willing to be responsible and 
and face it. It's not it's that they're not allowed to. And I think it really means that this crisis is showing us we have to change that governmental system so that we can have a majority of representative government again that can do what for California was so badly needed. Because what we're really talking about in education is sacrificing the lives of, of hundreds of thousands or millions of young people and their families and their children and their communities and the state's viability in competing with the other 49 states that don't have this ridiculous system and all the other countries in the world. The United States as a whole is falling behind rapidly in, in higher education attainment and California is taking steps now that will just um, cripple it and make it decline further from what's already a very poor record for a state that has a, a very advanced economy and a, um, a, a population that desperately needs education to survive in it. Most Americans don't realize that people with high school education are making much less in real terms than they were making 30 years ago, and that will continue to happen. You have to figure out how to get most of your population to have some kind of post-secondary education, or your communities rot. Your society declines, your economy goes downhill. Um, and that's what we're facing. And we're facing, uh, uh, we're facing that within an institutional structure that does not permit the majority to make a decision. And do you, are you at all optimistic of that changing? And if so, how would you see it changing? I think that the catastrophe that we're facing um, ought to lead people in this state to realize that we need to change the Constitution. We need to create majority rule in California. We need to create representative government. We need to make it more difficult for special interest groups to change our Constitution. Um, I really think there's time. The time has come when it's obvious that we need to have constitutional changes in this state. By, by convention, by initiative, by? I think either one. I, I think we, I really think California needs a convention. You know, the state constitution is hundreds of pages long. The, mm -hmm. the United States Constitution, you can carry in a few pages in your pocket, and mm -hmm. it actually works. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the study, Hans. Uh, I was noting on page five of the study that there's a, a chart that charts uh, bachelor's degrees awarded in California, and then notes that that's from, 90, from 77 to 2007, they increased from 83,000 to 153,000, an 84% increase. That's, uh, that's, large, that's bigger than the population as a whole. Um, a, a pretty impressive number. Uh, no, uh, why shouldn't that be something to be pleased about? Or I guess maybe well, it is something it, it, In fact, it is something to be pleased about historically. And California was keeping pace with population growth. It was a little faster than population growth. So it wasn't like we were making tremendous gains. Um, California, one of the defining features of the state is we have had a rapidly growing population decade after decade. In fact, no other developed region of the world that's the size of California has sustained the kind of population growth that we have. And California has, in the past, done a pretty good job at um, allowing our, our higher education systems to keep pace. Now, you have to keep in mind that over that same time frame, students were starting to pick up more and more of the costs of, of uh, their education than they did when I went to college, for example. But still, um, it, the track record is that we have done it in the past. A lot of the dysfunction that uh, Gary's talking about, I think, were, uh, are, are really coming home to roost now. And we see it in, in, in the budget crisis we're having now. Uh, and I think that in many ways in the past, we were able to put off a lot of the, the, the tough decisions and, and problems that we're having right now. And, and that's one figure that showed we were, we were doing okay. 
Um, yeah, so one of the things is we yeah. didn't put them off for the elementary and secondary system. It's right. been going down like a rock, you know, for decades now, uh, from a very high level to a very troubled level. Right. Now that's really beginning to hit our higher education system. And one reason the higher ed system was able to compensate was because they could charge fees. And, and of course, in K-12, you don't charge fees, um, and you shouldn't. <laughs> but um, that's one reason that the, the higher ed system was able to maintain uh, some of the quality and some of the growth. And it's a, an object of some conventional wisdom that it is Prop 13 that is largely responsible for the K through 12 piece of that. Is that something that all of you would accept? Well, you yeah. know, when people say Prop 13, they're really talking about the whole series of propositions mm -hmm. that mean, meant that um, you could uh, wipe out the local tax base, basically. And, uh, but I think it's Prop 13 plus the limitations on raising any other kinds of taxes, plus the extraordinary majorities and so forth, all these things together create an incredibly difficult situation. And I would add that, you know, if you look at the education code in California, it's, you know, this thick and the smallest print you've ever seen. Um, we've sort of over-regulated our higher education system as well as K through 12, but certainly I think um, amidst all this grim news, I hope that we can have a real honest conversation about what some of the opportunities exist, knowing that it's very unlikely that we'll be able to raise revenue this year or next perhaps. Um, that they're, you know, we're still investing and spending quite a bit of money on higher education. Um, maybe it's time for the legislature and the governor to really step back and allow colleges and universities to have some flexibility as they're receiving all of these cuts uh, for colleges and universities to figure out how they can best serve the most number of students possible. Um, and to have the conversation of how do we minimize the impact of these cuts on student access, which I think we value. We believe that students that are eligible and prepared and have done everything right should have the opportunity to go to college. And we should all be ashamed that we're turning anybody away that was told to do A, B, and C, uh, and simply, you know, sorry, we can't serve you this year because we don't have enough uh, space for you or funding to cover your slot. Um, so I think we really need to think about um, the legislature and the governor and pressuring them to really uh, give some of that autonomy back to colleges and universities with very clear expectations to serve more students and to do a better job at serving them, to expect some accountability that you will improve the number of students um, that complete a certificate program, that get an associate's degree, that transfer to a four-year university. One of the recommendations in the PPIC report is that we can close that gap pretty significantly, and, and Hans, you can speak more about it specifically, um, if we improve the transfer from our two-year colleges to our four-year universities. And I think that that's an important priority that we can ask our legislature and our governor to take on there's an intersegmental task force of the community colleges, the CSU and the UC system. We need to demand that they come up with some really good suggestions for streamlining the transfer pathway. It shouldn't be so complicated for a student to figure out what they need to do to transfer um, and to find out that there's 10 different pathways to transfer depending on where they want to go, what program they want to enter. We make it really complicated. We continuously put up obstacles and so uh, there are opportunities, and I hope we don't sort of feel taken aback by all of the bad news that's out there. 
Hans, you want to talk about some of those recommendations and opportunities? Yeah, sure. And, and you, you mentioned students do A, B, C. Actually, it's A through G, right. that <laughs> which are the, the, the courses that you have to take in high school. But that actually kind of <clears throat> is, is another point I'd like to make, and that is there are some things we can do that might not be tremendously expensive. I, I do think that in the end, you know, if we want to have a different state, if we want to have different, better educational outcomes, it will cost money. Um, but there are things we can do that could free up um, uh, the higher ed systems in terms of how they make decisions about funding and, and, and perhaps in K-12 as well. But the A through G course requirements are what, what are required to take for high school students um, to uh, be eligible to enroll at a UC or CSU. And realize that in California we have a, a population of students, in many cases their parents uh, have not even graduated from high school themselves. Uh, English is often their second language. And here they're, they're supposed to help their child navigate a high school system where they have to know what the A through G requirements are and in a high schools where there isn't a lot of help for identifying uh, student, uh, working with students through counselors uh, and academic preparation to, to help them get there. So some of those, that kind of informational component of this Yes, that, that costs money too, but it's, it's, it's not as expensive as completely you know, revamping the system or, or, or making some other pretty um, dramatic changes. Uh, what we found in this study is that if, if we just actually make n not very dramatic improvements in some of the pathways we talked about, uh, enrolling from high school to college. So for example, if California moves from where we are right now uh, to the national average over the next 16 years in terms of the percent of high school kids who go on to college. And if we improve our, our transfer rate um, from where it is right now to 20% higher, just 1.2 times higher, and if we have CSUs uh, improve their completion rates, um, remember I talked about only about half of CSU entering freshmen graduate within six years. If they move halfway to where UCs are right now over the next 16 years, we could actually close half of this one million uh, sized gap. Uh, and those are pretty modest um, uh, goals, I think. Uh, I think certainly one part of the solution for, for higher skill, skill development in California will be other kinds of post-secondary education short of a bachelor's degree. Um, the president in his uh, address to Congress uh, said that uh, everyone should get at least one year of post-secondary education. And I think we have to be smart and strategic about that. Um, and that we need to give kids information uh, and certainly we need to provide resources to educators to get them there. But I, I do think that there are some things that we can do that, that move us along that path and, and I don't want people to, to leave here thinking it's just all impossible, that the, the mountain is so big that it's impossible to climb because I don't you think it is. You have to admit that in the governor's proposal, all of these things you suggested are almost completely eliminated. Right, so everything that's happening right now, already. Right. so everything that's <laughs> happening right now in the short term yeah. is obviously moving us in the yeah. wrong direction. And I agree that there are big governance issues uh, yeah. that need to be addressed for California yeah. to make it there. And, and that might be the biggest obstacle. It's not actually improving high school preparedness for college, and that's, that's a challenge too. But maybe the biggest challenge we face is, is this governance challenge. Gary, what's the role for private universities in all this? Wouldn't you expect that there would be uh, uh, growth in the private system if the public system can't accommodate all this demand? Well, the private system is really small in the West. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about a state that's overwhelmingly public, and most of the states in the west of the Mississippi River are like that. 
More than 2.3 million yeah. students are in our public colleges and universities. Yeah. Compared so to what in private? Expanding, expand, I think that it's the private enrollment is only a so, fifth or so, isn't yeah, it? So, so uh, yeah. three out of every four bachelor's degrees awarded in California in any given year are awarded by public by universities. Public and universities. and the privates are not, and, and in terms of enrollment, it's over 80%. Yeah. And the privates okay. are not growing very fast. Uh, in terms of their share. They're keeping up with the population, but they're not growing, except for one segment of the privates, and it's still fairly small, and that's the private for-profits. Yeah, oh. the private for-profits are a gross area, but they have really mixed results and high costs, and you know have to be watched carefully because we've had a previous record with private nonprofits getting Pell Grants and getting student indebtedness and not producing outcomes that are good. Some of the private nonprofits are for-profits for are good, and others are really dangerous to students, and mm -hmm. we don't have very good regulation of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and but the, when you're thinking about the traditional private sector, it's just not expanding, and it's it's not likely to expand. It's very costly, and a lot of those institutions themselves are very vulnerable right now, because their endowments have declined dramatically, and mm -hmm. they're in they're in deep trouble as well. Michelle, you, part of your mandate is to look for bipartisan solutions uh, to these. Not a lot of bipartisanship evident uh, in Sacramento these days. Are, are there areas of bipartisan consensus on some of the issues we're talking about here? Um, I think there are. I think when you talk about some of the, the initiatives that we've um, moved forward is to try to take advantage of the small opportunities that exist out there. Um, last year, we passed uh, overwhelmingly with bipartisan support a bill called Early Commitment to College that would ensure that beginning in middle school, we would start telling students about their opportunities to prepare for college, give them information about financial aid, really recognizing that a great number of young Californians, especially low-income Californians, would be the first in their families to go to college, don't have resources or support. Um, and that was really a bipartisan effort that got that passed. Um, we're supporting, again, in a bipartisan manner, uh, a bill to provide an associate's degree in transfer, the ability for community colleges to provide an associate's degree in transfer to, again, uh, try to increase the number of uh, transfers that we see in our colleges and universities. We're pressing on the transfer issue um, in terms of the intersegmental effort as well to really um, make sure institutions uh, can do things differently to really streamline the path for students and be student-centered. Um, we're looking at opportunities for you know flexibility. I think uh, now more than ever, there's uh, at least a willingness knowing that we're doing these deep, devastating cuts um, that are really, as somebody told me once, they're, you know, they're not at the fringes anymore. We're cutting into the bone. So how do we minimize them and give colleges an opportunity to be flexible? And so we're looking at some options for uh, supporting some efforts that would relax some regulations and give colleges the opportunity to decide how they use the limited funds that they have. Um, our board is bipartisan. You know, we didn't come to the conclusion easily that we should raise revenue. I think it was a tough decision for, for us as an organization. It's not something that we take lightly, but if we're really talking about uh, maintaining and improving the quality of life that we all want to live in this state and meeting the workforce demands of the health industry, of science, technology, and engineering and math fields, those that are called STEM, we have to make sure that we prepare a workforce, and that does cost money. Clearly, it costs money because we're turning away students that are eligible to go to college today. 
And do you have a specific revenue proposal suggestion? We haven't um, made a specific proposal, but we're actually looking, you know, I was sharing with you that we're looking line by line at all of the cuts and, and we are going to try and make a priority list of, of cuts that we will probably uh, support because we have to acknowledge the reality that some cuts have to happen in this context. Um, what we're trying to do is prioritize cuts that, that have the least amount of impact to access for students, um, to financial aid, um, and that, again, give colleges some flexibility. You know, the University of California already has a lot of financial flexibility, and they've been using it very skillfully, I think, for the last couple of years as, as the resources have declined. But what they're talking about now is if the kind of budget that's going to be enacted goes through, is maybe an emergency 20 to 25% tuition increase. At the same time, the government's proposing to to the governor's proposing to eliminate the Cal Grant program. And the Pell Grants aren't going up nearly fast enough to begin to cover that. We're talking about a full-scale access emergency, if anything like the proposed budget is enacted. And what we know from history is that every time there's a bad recession or economic problem, the real burden of college costs goes up, and it never goes down later. You know, So we're talking about ratcheting up the whole system, which already has really vastly higher barriers than the last generation faced uh, in a way that we probably will not get away with, away from. And nobody is proposing increases in student aid that are anything like what's necessary to keep access, even at the level it is now. So we're already at a situation where somebody in the upper quarter of the income distribution is something like 10 times as likely to finish college as somebody in the bottom. And, you know, we're, we're talking about making this much worse. And, um, you know, we are at an emergency situation. And for those of us who are in the university, you know, it's maybe self-serving to say that. We're going to be better off than most people who work for the state of California. And we have wonderful jobs with great students and so forth, and we'll survive somehow. But, you know, a lot of the students who could have taken advantage of this won't. They won't even be there and their lives will be changed. And for some whole communities, that will be devastating. Most of the kids being born in California now are Latino, the absolute majority. And only about a tenth of Latinos are finishing college. What does that mean for the future of this state? Since almost nobody doesn't have some post-secondary, is even likely to be stably in the middle class. Most of those families are going to be increasingly impoverished as time goes along. If we don't turn that around, we won't have a state that, you know, will be anything like the California of the past. So one of the things we've done at, at EPIC is we've conducted a number of uh, statewide surveys of residents of the state and how they feel about different issues. And we've had a couple that have focused uh, specifically on higher education. And one of the things we find there is that in terms of the institutions of the state, uh, people have greater confidence and greater goodwill towards our higher education institutions than any other segment of state government, whether it's compared to K-12, certainly, and certainly compared to how they feel about the performance of the legislature and the governor. Uh, they're very positive about um, higher education. So there is a lot of goodwill in California um, among the electorate in terms of um, how they feel about higher education. And then when we've asked um, parents about uh, whether they think a, a college education, bachelor's degree, is necessary for their children to succeed in, in the workforce of tomorrow, it's actually Latinos who are most likely to, to agree with that statement. About 80% of Latinos agree with that statement. 
substantially higher percentages than, than among non-Hispanic whites, for example. I know we're going to go uh, take some questions from all of you in just a moment, but before we do, I, I know, at least it's our experience, my experience at the paper, that anytime we write about virtually any issue in California, we get a sort of a shrieking uh, illegal immigration response. Uh, what, uh, to what degree is uh, our illegal immigrants putting pressure on this system that is relevant to its ability to, to provide the kind of access that we're, that we're all seeking here? Uh, who wants to start? Anyway, you can answer I'll, that. I'll, I'll start with, with just um, when we think about education in California, uh, it is the case that um, undocumented immigrants or illegal immigrant children are, are in the public schools, but the vast majority of children in, in California schools were actually born in California and are therefore residents of the United States, uh, citizens of the United States by, by birth. Uh, and the percent that are uh, immigrants is, is not very high. Uh, the percent that are second generation is quite high. So uh, when you're talking about uh, the schools, the K through 12 and, and, and higher education, you're not talking about a lot of illegal immigrants in, in the schools. Now many of them are, are children of uh, undocumented immigrants, so it depends how far down that kind of generational road you want to go. But the fact is that they're born here, they're citizens by birth, uh, and they're not citizens of any other country. When you're talking about undocumented immigrants and higher education, of course, they're not eligible for financial aid, and um, they, they most can't go to college without financial aid. And we have the, you know, under the AB 540 legislation that permits them to get in-state tuition, they still can't get federal aid and so forth. So I know from experience of working with undergraduates like that at UCLA, brilliant young people who are trying to make it, it's incredibly difficult, and the numbers are very small who actually are able to pull that off. Um, so in terms of the higher education system, I think that this is really a false issue, mm -hmm. um, really a false issue. And in terms of the elementary and secondary system, it's a much, it's a much more debatable question, but. Um, I don't think anybody should blame the higher education access issue on illegal immigration in any way. It's a trivial uh, effect. It's really not even a decimal point, I would mm -hmm. think. Michelle? Yeah, I would agree with, with with both Hans and Gary have shared. You know, the reality is that most of our population is born in California, in the United States, they are U.S. citizens, and we need to really focus in on how we're going to provide a better education for them and better opportunities um, because they're going to stay here and they're going to live here, and so are we. And what kind of state do we want to live in, I think, is the bigger question. Very good. Shall we open it to the audience? <clears throat> Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. My name is Leonard Eisenberg. I'm a teacher for the Los Angeles Unified School District. And the proverbial 850-pound gorilla that is in the room tonight is a practice that has existed with LAUSD for the last 40 years that continues, which is called social promotion. So that when you talk about junior colleges trying to do things, they're busy doing remediation. My school just got WASC accreditation. If you look at the star reading scores of my kids, they read from fourth to sixth grade. So either we confront the monster that is LAUSD or it's going to continue to ripple so that these kids don't have the skills. I'd appreciate you, you know, commenting on this. I'd like to start. Well, um, I'm a local resident. Um, <laughs> on the social promotion issue specifically, the idea 
has developed in, in, as the, in, during the conservative political era that we should flunk kids in large numbers and that that would cure their problems. And that policy has been implemented in Chicago and New York and a number of other cities in recent years. There had been 40 years of research before that that showed that uh, flunking kids does not work. Mm -hmm. It does not produce higher achievement and it, does not, it, it increases the dropout rate. So what we need, rather than flunking or promoting people who don't learn anything, is using the money we spend on flunking um, in order to give them targeted tutoring and, and double classes and other kinds of transitions um, at critical points in their educational process. Um, it's not the only alternative isn't to socially promote or to flunk. And the, the right alternative is to invest in kids as they begin to fall behind make sure that we have good summer programs and tutoring programs and so forth. Um, and that's one of the sad things that's being eliminated now, summer school, um, which is one of the useful things that can be done when kids really begin to fall behind. Because if they get behind their age level in school, the chances that they're ever going to graduate almost disappear. The, uh, so, the solutions you described, though, sound uh, markedly more expensive than either flunking Well, actually, flunking them. and repeating grades is the most expensive is and the right? most useless because you're spending another ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 or whatever your okay. annual cost is, and you get nothing out of it except an increased probability of dropping out. This is exactly what we predicted when Chicago went to ending social promotion, and it's exactly what the research shows has actually happened in Chicago. New York has done this twice in recent history. Most recently, they, the mayor of New York fired members of the school board to end so, because the others wouldn't vote to end so-called social promotion. They've now ended it, and their dropout rate is going up, and their achievement level isn't going up. So basically, we have to come up with using that money in a more intelligent way, which is about tutoring, early identification, summer programs where necessary, and other kinds of ways to make sure that kids um, aren't held back, and but do learn something. So, yeah, and, and you're right that remediation is a big issue for the community colleges. It's also a big issue for the California State University system, less so for UC, uh, partly because UC just draws the top one-eighth of high school graduates, and, and CSU uh, draws the top one-third. But it's a, it's a very big issue, and, and, and the higher education institutions have to deal with it. So the community colleges provide a lot of remedial education, so does CSU. The CSU system, Michelle, maybe you want to talk about this a little bit, is trying to um, uh, alert students while they're still in high school where they're, de when, where they're deficient in, in, in math and, and, and English. So there's the early assessment program, it's called, uh, where students, when they're a junior, can take a test. They'll get the results of the test. It will tell them if they're deficient or not. Hopefully, they'll address those deficiencies when they're a senior. But um, other research suggests that earlier interventions uh, in, in a kid's educational life uh, are a lot more effective than, than very late on. And we've done work at PPIC where we can identify someone who's not going to pass the KC, which uh, you might know as the California High School Exit Exam, uh, pretty well by, by fourth grade. Um, so I think that um, a lot of the, the literature suggests that um, early interventions are really key to addressing some of these remediation problems that we have to deal with in, in colleges and in high schools. One of the problems that we have here in California is extreme segregation. The Latinos are the most segregated in California of any state, and they're segregated almost always by ethnicity plus poverty and often by language, which we call triple segregation. Um, and those schools have the least experienced teachers, the most limited curriculum, the highest level of turnover and instability of enrollment and teaching force, um, and they are most likely to be sanctioned by the state and the federal government 
in ways that speed up the departure of faculty and demoralize the places without giving them appropriate support. You know, we have we assume that we can actually equalize things within that context. Nobody has ever done that, right. uh, and nobody talks about the fact that we isolate so many students um, and teachers in schools that are just overwhelmed with the conditions of poverty. There's a, a high school or two here in Los Angeles, for example, where the absolute majority of the kids are foster kids whose lives are truly in, unstable on so many dimensions, um, and that high school is supposed to somehow do something to solve all of that, those issues without any kind of external support. We have extremely inadequate social work and, and counseling support for these schools that are just overwhelmed with the crises of intense concentrated poverty and racial isolation. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be very brief because I know there's other questions. Um, you know, I'm not an expert in K through 12, and I absolutely agree that the issue of better prepared students and um, has to be addressed. And certainly, community colleges and the CSU system in particular have very big challenges when they're working to try to get students to college level readiness. Um, my husband is a high school teacher, and um, so I hear firsthand on a regular basis, you know, the challenges that he has to deal with. But I think that the bigger gorilla, it's very easy for us to always talk about kids failing and for us not to acknowledge the reality of the opportunity gap that we present to our children. You know, that if, you know, UCLA has done a great job of doing an opportunity index, go school by school and do it in the context of even the current LAUSD budget cuts and take a look at all of the teachers that are getting laid off notices and how it affects by how our city is segregated and um, by the, the level of performance at each of those schools. So, so we allow these things to happen. We also create a social construct for the results that we're getting. And so I think it's important for us to address that and not just talk about sort of how kids are, are doing well or not well. We, we bear some responsibility for that. Another question here. Hi, my name is Linda Umdenstock, and I'm most familiar with the California Community Colleges, and as you have so well stated, so much of the basic skills issues hit there, and whether they, the students can transfer or not when over 70% of them start in basic skills depends on how far they are. But that combined with the um, lack of financial aid that's coming up and everything, I'm wondering if you are willing to predict we're really headed to a bifurcated society if we can't deal with that gap in equity, the gap in um, basic skills, as well as the gap in um, skills for jobs of the future and so forth. That huge thing where equity hits primarily at the community colleges, I would suggest. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. You know, with um, we are, I think, unless we make the right um, investments and the right decisions and support, especially the community college system, because that is where the majority of, of students, including the majority of, of CSU graduates, come from. They start at the, at the community college level. It really is an entryway, not only for four-year graduation, but certainly for preparing the workforce. Many of the health careers, we did a study recently that found, you know, not a big surprise, we know there's a nurse, nursing shortage, but there's actually a big shortage in allied health fields. Um, and much of that workforce is prepared at the community colleges. Um, so unless we really uh, support the community college system 
and help them deal with some of these you know, cuts in, in reasonable ways, I think you're absolutely right, Linda. Thank you. We have another question in the front. Hi, my name is Alex. Uh, I used to be an instructional assistant for uh, Montebello Unified School District, working with special needs students. And uh, I also have brothers and sisters that are currently in high school. And uh, my question is, what, it, what do you think uh, the amount of testing has to do with the lack of interest in college? Like uh, standardized tests in particular. Uh, a lot of my brother and sister uh, would tell me that, you know, they think uh, that college is going to be exactly like high school. And, you know, like they're going to have to do test after test after this after that, which is fine. But, you know, I think uh, a lot of the standardized testing has taken out of the curriculum that we usually teach K through 12 students or even K through 6 students. Well, I don't think that there's good evidence to show that college, interest in college has gone down because of testing, but I do think there is good evidence to show that those schools in which testing becomes too dominant, which are mostly very high poverty schools that aren't meeting NCLB requirements for adequate yearly progress, it's very demoralizing to the teachers and the students to do nothing but test drill. Um, and that's happening. We did surveys of the students, of the teachers in Fresno, for example, uh, and it showed that the teachers wanted to have standards, they wanted to be held accountable, but they felt that the accountability system that was being imposed on them was driving them to eliminate the other subjects, to eliminate teaching in depth, to try to teach just for the stuff that was going to be on the test, um, and it led them to leave their, their schools more rapidly, because the schools with the highest poverty students are being sanctioned, and their teachers are being put under tremendous pressure and being forced to teach in a very rote way, which is very boring to both the teachers and the students. I don't think you can say that it, it has eliminated interest in, in, in college, because I don't think there's any evidence of that, but I do think that it has demoralized faculty and students in a lot of schools, and that it really hasn't produced higher levels of achievement. Hi, my name is Victoria. Um, thank you for your discussion. I'm fortunate enough to be a recent college graduate. Um, my question is, if there wasn't this problem, you say, um, of the minority veto, or if there was um, discussion in the legislature for creating new revenue, where would that revenue be coming from? And do you have any suggestions for how that would work and where it would go? I've heard rumors of a new VAT, but I don't really understand how that money comes into the state budget. Well, I think there's a lot of logical places to go, you know, setting policy aside. The fact that property of commercial facilities in this city might be taxed on 1% of their value 35 years ago um, is ridiculous. You know, I don't think that there's any logical justification for that or, or, or any, any way that you can say that that's an equitable share of a burden for, for financing public education, for example. I think that there were a number of areas of taxation that, that the majority in the legislature was ready to move on that would not have been that unpopular. You know, I, I, I'm involved right now in uh, some studies of the Las Vegas metropolitan school system. Their legislature just last weekend overrode their gov conservative governor on six or seven different bills to try to keep the schools financed and to raise taxes. Almost every other state has faced this in this crisis. We aren't allowed to face it because of the constitutional limitations on our legislature. 
Well, you know, one of the problems we face as a state too is the volatility of our, our tax, uh, of our revenue stream. Yeah. So California has a very progressive income tax, which uh, is good for a lot of reasons, and it means that more higher income people pay a higher share of, of uh, tax than, than, than lower income. But what happens then is when we have large capital gains, either because of real estate gains people have or because of um, stock market gains, for example, we get a lot of revenue. And then when things turn down, as they are now, that completely dries up. And so we have this very volatile um, timeline in terms of our, our revenues in California. And I'll say something very unpopular, which is I think more of us actually have to kind of share the burden right. so that we don't have that kind of volatility. But that's a very unpopular. <laughs> people, in fact, in, in surveys we do at PPIC, it's basically, and Gary, you said this earlier, it's basically people want all the services. And when we identify specific areas, uh, they don't want to cut health, they don't want to cut education, they are willing to cut prisons, um, but that's not actually going to solve our problem. By, there's not enough money there to, to, it could help, but it's not going to solve all our problem. Um, and then when you say, well, how should we raise revenues, it's always the other guy. It's never me. Um, and, and people aren't really, really willing to step up. Another question to your right. Hi, uh, Ben Allen, and I'm a member of the Santa Monica and Malibu Unified School District Board of Education. Um, I'm interested in, we've talked a lot about revenue, and uh, it's clearly, it's clearly a, uh, a, a, a huge part of the problem. And, you know, California is suffering tremendously and will continue to. Uh, of course, getting down to the facts report talked a lot about reform as well, and I'd be interested in, ta in hearing a bit of your thoughts about K-12 reform and some of the ideas that have been out there, which are most compelling to you, and, and a bit of the politics around those uh, reform initiatives and proposals. Well, I'll mention one thing. Gary knows more about K-12 than I do. But one thing that we've been looking at at PPIC is our system of K-12 school finance. And we have a real Byzantine structure right now. We have dozens and dozens of categorical grants. We don't have a good uh, student data system in California for understanding how effective uh, many of these programs are. Uh, other states have gone to what I'm, you know, I'm saying this in this you know, evening program, the weighted student formula. So <laughs> who wants to hear the details of that? Probably no one. But basically the idea is you provide funding to schools based on the students in the school and some of the challenges that those schools face. So that schools that have uh, more impoverished students, schools that have more uh, uh, English as a second language students might get more funding under that system. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, it should be a very clear system. It should be fairly simple compared to this very Byzantine structure that we have right now. So that's one area where I think um, uh, in terms of K-12 and K-12 finance, it, that there's a lot of work that could be done to, to improve what we do. Well, I, I guess I differ with that because I don't think aggregate funding levels make very much difference um, you know, within narrow bounds. Uh, I think what does make a difference in terms of school reform is just a few things that we know of that actually have long-term effects. Really high-quality preschool, definitely worth, worth doing. Um, appropriate smaller size classes and early elementary grades, not implemented the way they were done in California, but implemented the way they were done in Tennessee and other places. I think anything that gets highly qualified teachers, not defined by NCLB, but defined in a richer way into schools of concentrated poverty and keeps them there, and talented administrators, very worth doing. Because without doing that, you really can't improve those schools significantly. 
I think ways to create some incentives for people like that to stay there and and recognition for what they do by measuring what difference they make rather than a crazy standard like NCLB um, would be very beneficial. I think transition into high school is a catastrophe, for especially in high poverty areas. And we have some models of things that actually make a difference in Kansas City and in, in Baltimore with the, with the talent development high schools and so forth. I think we need to do those things on a serious scale. I think in terms of the uh, adolescent levels, we really need to have much more support systems in terms of counseling and so forth, especially if we're going to keep kids on the path to college. And we need to really have a default of a college-going curriculum unless students opt out of it um, and the support to make it real. Um, there's, there's not very many things that we know of that actually make a clear difference that have been proven, but there's a few, and they, they would make a substantial benefit. I think anything we can do to get kids out of extremely segregated schools into diverse schools like magnet schools, definitely worth doing. Um, and kids who do make those kinds of transfers do better in terms of completion and college success and so forth. Um, but it's a long, we're talking about a semester long discussion. <laughs> you have to take his course. <laughs> Another question here to your left. Uh, hello and good evening. My name is Johnny Mendes and I'm a fifth grade teacher at LAUSD. Yeah. And at our school, Alessandra Elementary, we do have a path to college program that starts for the fifth graders. Right. We do have a magnet track um, that, thank you, <laughs> that uh, also goes up to sixth grade, so the sixth graders are also invited. But we just heard here tonight that you uh, said, uh, we are allowing this to happen. We, I presume, is the general public. So it is as simple to say that the general public, in general, does not really care about public education, in particular, K through 12. And if, um, you know, I don't know if you have any numbers, but well-to-do, the well-to-do families I don't know what salary number you want to put at, but what percentage of those families um, do not send their children to public schools? And if they did, you know, would it make a difference? In California, um, certainly higher income people are more likely to send their kids to private school than other groups, but still the vast, vast majority send their kids to public schools. And in our surveys, Consistently across time, we find that education is, is one of, if not usually, the top issue that Californians state when they say what are their main concerns about California public policy. Um, so, you know, right now, if we ask that question, people would say the budget, and education would come in second or third, or they'd say the economy. During uh, when gas prices were real high, people said gas prices. But education is, is always uh, in the top three and, and often number one. So. Uh, I think Californians care a lot about K-12 education. Um, they want uh, the system to work, uh, and uh, they're mostly dissatisfied with how it's working statewide. But when you ask them and parents about their own local schools, they tend to be pretty positive, even in cases where maybe they shouldn't be. One of the things that's interesting is that a much higher percentage of American kids are in public schools than were 50 years ago. Um, now, it, um, it's substantially um, higher than it was, and it's actually going up uh, nationally. It's let, where the problem comes is in the central cities, where a lot of, of, of affluent people don't use public schools. Um, and 
that's where you have to make some choices. If you want to have those people in public schools, and it's important to have them there for political reasons as well as because they, they raise this level of competition and they bring resources into the schools with them. You have to really think about magnet schools and other ways to make sure that, that there's a path to college because they won't put their kids in schools where there isn't a path to college. Um, and that's true of middle-class black and Latino families as well as middle-class white families. So we have to think those things through. If we want to get those people who aren't using public schools in Los Angeles to use them, we have to give them schools that will, will, will provide a path for their kids. Um, and those same schools would provide a better path for the other kids that, who are already in those schools. Is the percentage, won't, that won't happen by accident. Is the percentage of California children in private school any different than those of any other big state? I think state? it's lower than the national average. Is that right? <clears throat> I think it is. I don't remember offhand, but I think it is. Yeah. I think I would just add, you know, and you, I think, reminded me that it's um, never a good idea to use very wide blanket statements because, mm -hmm. um, but you've given me the opportunity to, to I think, add something. I, I wouldn't say that we don't care about public education, but I think maybe sometimes we feel hopeless about what we can or can't do to fix it. And so I think our responsibility as people that care about these issues and that are involved in these issues is to provide opportunities where we can influence change in a way that's constructive. Um, because I think folks just feel sometimes overwhelmed, perhaps, that you know they care about education, but it's a mess. What, do, what could we possibly do to fix it? And so I think, if anything, we, we've got to sort of work on changing that perception. I think you should be uh, the director of our school board. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of you do, but you really, I mean, everything you said makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Thank you very much. That would give me one vote. <laughs> well, we can work on endorsing you, too. Another question to your right. Hello, my name is Jacqueline Thadine, and I'm a Gear Up coordinator for Cal State Northridge. And I have a two-part question. The first question is, do you think making the A through G requirements a graduation requirement for like the, the state of California, will that increase the college rate, the college going rate, or will it increase the high school dropout rate because students aren't some, most students aren't ready for the A through G requirements. It might be too tough for them. And my second question would be, where is the future for CTE programs in California and making students wanting, like, being involved in a CTE program in high school, helping them like say, yeah, I do want to go to college and continue into like a certain trade? So I'll take a, a, a first cut at that. And I think, um, yes, if you required A through G to, require, to graduate from high school, I think you'd have both effects. You'd have more kids college ready and more kids going to college, and you'd also have more kids dropping out uh, who weren't uh, ready and, and prepared to, to finish that curriculum. Um, and then in terms of, of career tech or vocational education, I think that what I would argue for is that, um, well, certainly there's the whole community college part of it, but I think you were asking more about that in, in high school, right? Yeah, I'm thinking I'm in high school. Yeah, hopefully right. Right, so I, I think there should be pathways th that way, and I think that there are ways that uh, vocational education or career tech education could be designed in high school so it's still academically rigorous at the same time, so that the math concepts, for example, are associated with the vocational training that you're getting, but that, that they're high level, and, and there are ways to do that so that kids who do take that pathway, presumably, hopefully, would, would still be uh, eligible for, uh, for your university if they so choose. I, on, these, on these two questions, they're both really good questions, and the answer to both of them is complicated. 
Um, it is important that more kids get A to G, and I think they should be programmed into those courses as a default if they, if they don't say something else. Requiring it for graduation is, I don't think, the right way to go until you really get the kids ready, um, because uh, it's going to lead to one or of two things. It's going to lead to more flunking, and there's just massive flunking already in the ninth and 10th grade, particularly in high-poverty schools, which produces more dropouts. Uh, or it's going to lead to watering down courses in a meaningless way. Um, and both of those things have happened in places that have had those kinds of requirements. And I think that the better way to do it is to have a default programming and support system, but not to make it a requirement, particularly not in the short run. In terms of the vocational technical, the problem with it was in the past that it wasn't good vocational and technical, and it did not lead to jobs. And when we surveyed thousands of kids in the Midwest, we found that most of the kids who were in those tracks weren't planning to work in the field that they were being trained in, and they weren't being trained in up-to-date ways. So the, if you can get really high-quality training in career academies and it's linked to pretty good academics, it's a really good idea. But it's, it's not something you just want to do across the board, and you certainly don't want to go back to the old model of vocational education as kind of a, a dumping ground. Mm -hmm. We have a question in the very front row here. Uh, that last statement um, led me in a different di direction to question. Based upon your analogy of, uh, let's look at uh, the, uh, people driving a car and it's somehow programmed to drive straight no matter what. Mm -hmm. And though there is a cliff before them, <laughs> that's their programming. Um, do we have enough time to uh, put the brakes on using some, all of the things that you've discussed a concern with a political action to really put the brakes on? But what we have going on now? I think we, we do have an opportunity this year and next, even in, the, in this grim climate, to, um, to take advantage of some opportunities to really have um, the state define some priorities and, and, and do as best a job as possible to minimize cuts to access and, and to promote success so that students do a better job getting through uh, the system. I think one of the things that Hans talks about is that clearly in this economic climate, um, it means that in a few years, we have to do even more. We have to do an even better job so that we can close that gap in terms of educated workers um, that we're going to require. But I think that there are opportunities to, to take advantage of. Um, I, I, I don't think that we should feel like we've got to throw our hands up in the air because there's no additional money and because we can't stop some of the cuts that are coming. I think we need a social movement. I really don't think that this is normal politics now. And you know, when we really did make breakthroughs on access, they, it came out of a social movement. And, and um, it came out of a mobilization of, of people. You know, it came out of minority communities, religious groups, labor unions, normal citizens getting together and saying, this has just gone too far. We just cannot allow this to continue. And I don't think that that can be turned around in a few weeks, but I really do believe that we're at a stage in many ways in our country now where we need something like that. We're facing very deep problems. Before this crisis, as your work shows, California is doing terribly in, in terms of college access. 
is doing terribly in terms of the, the master plan isn't working. The community colleges, nine-tenths of them really aren't transferring people in significant numbers. Um, it's, it's a false promise. Um, you know, there's a lot of big changes that need to be made for the next generation, and I think we just need to mobilize around them. Well, yeah, when the master plan was written, it, it was the master plan for higher education, 1960 to 1975. That's open. Um, <laughs> it wasn't updated. We still have the top one-third eligible for CSU, the top one-eighth eligible for UC in an economy that's changed in 50 years tremendously. And so I think the master plan was forward-thinking for its time, but it's, it's almost regressive now. My name is Anita Hermish, and I uh, have a company called Character-Based Success that emphasizes the importance of our choices. And I've taught classes to students. Um, I live down in Irvine. I've taught classes at UCI to students um, on how to make wise choices and also stay in school. My question is um, basically to any of you, but maybe Gary or Hans, and it's a segue, what you just said about I think we need a social movement. Uh, my question is this. By human nature, each of us, good people, not just bad people, good people are self-oriented uh, people and that, I think that's a good thing because we're responsible for ourselves. But it's not human nature to save a frag, uh, fraction of our time to volunteer to solve the problems, either locally or countywide. And I stage that, I state that kind of problem to ask this question: How realistic is it there for there to be funds for a plan to be developed for someone in each community? to say, you help on first base, you help in the second school, you help with the third grade of kids, because I believe that there's enough good-hearted people. If we had a coach named Hans or Gary or, or is it Michelle, if we had a coach that said, you help in this community, that if we just had enough kids, you know, if I came up with the name of a program called Leapfrog Love. If we just had someone telling us what to do, we would show up. I believe that we're good enough people, but we're all wondering and scratching our head, well, I don't know what to do, and besides, I'm busy. I'm hanging on to my job, so we're still self-oriented but kind of semi-clueless good people. Is it possible that we could have some kind of a plan and funding to organize the good people that want to help? <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer to that question. <laughs> I think that um, certainly there is a lot of goodwill out there. There's a lot of concern about um, education, but there are a lot of programs, and there are a lot of volunteers. Parents do spend a lot of time in the classroom, uh, uh, in, in especially K through uh, six. Um, but I, I think it's actually bigger than that, and I think it is, uh, you know, it's, it's about public policy, it's about uh, public government, um, and that means we need professionals uh, as well who know what they're doing. Um, and there are volunteers who know what they're doing often as well, but I, I'm not sure that that's, uh, I'm not sure how far that would take us. I, you know, when I was in college, I organized a volunteer program on Indian reservations in Minnesota, where, which is where I come from. And at the end, we evaluated it. And the other young woman who organized it with me, and I, we thought about it and we decided you know, it, we don't know how much good we really did. We didn't do any harm. We, did, we put on programs for kids, and 
they came and we had recreation activities and so forth, but all the basic conditions of poverty and isolation, and discrimination and everything didn't change. And there were some people who created connections and friendships, but the, it really changed us deeply because we got to understand what the problems really were in a way that changed how we just thought about our whole lives. And I think that's one of the things that comes out of good voluntary activity. That, you get to understand how deep the problems are that are facing families, other families. You get yourself in other people's shoes. And then you think about what really needs to be done. And part of that is volunteer, but part of it is big changes as well. So I think I always encourage people to volunteer, but not in a way that is noblesse oblige, that suggests that they can, uh, they can actually solve the problem, but because it is a human gesture, and it does lead to transformation of the volunteer as much as the person who's being helped. So I think it's a good idea, but it's just part of what needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we're, our whole existence at the Campaign for College Opportunity is based on uh, the value and the thought that we uh, can organize a coalition of supporters and volunteers to speak on these issues of higher education, at least, you know, which is our focus. So I would invite all of you to, you know, visit our website and sign up to receive news from the campaign because I think we can provide you with, um, you know, some opportunity to impact um, some of the decision making and some of the policy making. You know, we do very regular visits with legislators. We, you know, have events at the Capitol. Um, we engage young people who communicate why they want to go to college and why their legislators should save them a spot. Um, and, you know, we can only be as effective as, as the base of support that we have. So um, it's certainly possible, and we hope that you'll learn more and, and join us on some of these efforts. Thank you all. Thank you very much for all the panelists tonight. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks very much. We're going to meet you.